Yes, Venture, we do seek Jesus, and we seek to see you. It's so good to see you today. I love that. Shout out to our student section. It's good to see you guys. I'm going to follow Joy's lead on that. I just had a fun encounter in our lobby. Actually, the last, like, three weeks, I've had a conversation each week with one of my old youth ministry kids. They're not kids anymore. They've got kids of their own now. It makes me feel old, but it also makes me smile just to get to see generations of faith growing up and doing amazing things for God. It's cool to get to be a part of God's kingdom. And man, that's just a blessing to get to see that. It makes me smile. Well, we are talking about generosity for good reason. You know, I know that whenever the preacher starts talking about money or there's a a generosity series, I know that that makes some of us go, I don't know if I want to talk about that, especially in church. Listen, as a kid who grew up in the 80s and the 90s, kind of came of age during that era of televangelist scandals, I get it. I get the cringe factor, but it's discipleship. Money is simply downstream of faithfulness that we live for God. We have to talk about this. We get to talk about this. This is important unapologetically to talk about this in church. Why? Well, there are like 2,300, actually more than 2,300 verses in Scripture that talk about money and how money can have an effect on our discipleship, on how we live our lives before our God, how we seek to be more like Jesus tomorrow than we are today. Over 2,300 verses. Jesus himself, when he talked, he told parables many times. A full one-third of Jesus' parables deal with money. And the effects of money, the effects that money can have in and over our lives. So we get to talk about it. We should talk about it. Unapologetically, we should talk about money. When I launched this series three Sundays ago, I shared with you some kind of scary stats about uh, personal finance in our country. We talked about personal stats like personal debt, even credit card debt. We talked about the trend of living paycheck to paycheck and how we want to get in front of that. We talked about national finances, and we talked about the, um, the debt, the national debt, and how that's kind of a scary number, how we're leveraging our future, and we have to be so careful about that. Well, it's only fitting If we're going to talk about personal finance and our national debt, we should have a bit of a state of the church update as well. I want to share with you kind of a state of the church budget update. So let's have a little bit of a family meeting before we dive too deep into our Bible content today. If I were to share with you a state of the church, I would be tempted to talk about some of the really good things that we see that are happening here. You are maybe familiar with the dummy lights on a dashboard of your car that flash at you when there's a problem, but there's also some great gauges on your car that give you an indication of the health of how your engine is running and how the system is working as it's designed to be working. And I would share with you that our church has some really encouraging gauges on the dashboard right now. I would talk with you about how I stood right over there just a few weeks ago and 
And we had that moment of commitment. We, the stated goal for one life, our spiritual growth journey this fall, was to raise the temperature in our church of personal evangelism. And I think that's happened. It's happening. By the way, how are you doing? I, I stood over there, and it brought tears to my eyes, both services, as I watched you write initials on light bulbs and screw them into the bulbs. They're out there in the lobby now. How are you doing in that area? Is there an action step that needs to happen even this week for your one life? Remember, you have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're going to invest in? Is there something that God's calling you to do this week for that person that you identified several weeks ago? That's a good thing. I love that. I could tell you about how we're seeing membership. People who have are replacing their membership at our church is on the increase. We've got 13 folks coming to our house for dinner tonight. That's a part of our connections experience. There's some great things that are happening there. I could tell you about how uh, we're seeing uh, folks baptized. That number has gone up and to the right year over year from last year. We're seeing more people make a decision asking Jesus to be Lord and Savior of their life and are obedient to the waters of baptism. There's some great moves in our church right now. These are lead indicators, if you will. A lag indicator sometimes in church health is finance. Let me switch metaphors just a little bit. If I'm talking about dashboard lights, dashboard gauges, I see some healthy stuff there. Let's talk about the gas tank. Fuel. Money is simply fuel that drives mission. Money is fuel that drives ministry. The gas tank. This is the state of our church finances right now. So far, as of right now, has anybody uh, seen their spike in gas bills, water bills, um, electric bills? They're predicting even more of that. We have felt that here at the church. We've had more money go out than we had projected budgeted for spending last year, and so that has been on the rise. Expenses have been high. I got together with a youth, a group of pastors from across the country last week, did some sermon planning and some dreaming together and just kind of iron sharpening iron work. And it happened there just like it probably happens when you get together inside your industry with like-minded folks. You start talking shop, and so we started talking shop, including church finances. I don't know what it is, but somewhere around midsummer this year, it probably has to do with the news cycle and your 401k levels, and oftentimes this is how this happens inside the church world, not for profits. We've seen a drop in giving as well. We're not alone in that. An awful lot of churches are feeling that right now. Right now, we have received 94% of offerings that we anticipated when we set our budget for last year. This is a gap. You combine that with having to spend a little bit more on some of the things like utilities that I talked about. Here's the number right now. We are $135,000. I'm so grateful. Our, our, our um, budget team, our finance team, our elder team have been wise stewards. You should know that for many, many years. We have some um, cushion. But we've had to dip into that cushion to the tune of about $135,000 year to date. I say that knowing that this is the season where people are budgeting and thinking through year-end giving. And, oh my goodness, is uh, the church world, this is a big deal. Year-end giving in any nonprofit is a big deal. So can I just challenge you, as you think about, as you budget for year-end giving this year in your family, would you consider your church? 
and consider uh, giving to God in that area. By the way, we have reduced our budget for 2023. If you're a member at Venture, can I encourage you, check your email, um, check your spam filter, check your junk mail folder, your lead pastor, that email, I'm a member, that email went to my junk folder, and I had to find it last night, pull it, redeem it from my junk folder. But you should have gotten that last Thursday that's going to talk to you about the proposed budget. It's also got something in there for eldership. So our elders, we're actually adding an elder this year, and there's an opportunity to affirm the elders' decision on the elders that are re-upping uh, for the next term of eldership uh, next year. So please check your email for that and respond electronically to that opportunity. Okay, that's enough organizational talk. Let's go personal. Let's talk about personal application, shall we? So a few weeks ago, if you were here the week one of this series, uh, you heard me say, Don and I wanted to gift you with a book. Why? Because we believe in the principles that are found in this book. And almost 100 of you said yes and picked one of these up. I hope you're reading it. Can I just encourage you with this? This could be in this season of gift giving, this season of you're gearing up to give gifts, Christmas time, Thanksgiving time. This could be a gift to give yourself, to give your posterity. There, there are so many resources like this. Maybe you're a Dave Ramsey fan, maybe an old Larry Burkett fan. There's great principles for living a Bible-centric uh, uh, strategy as far as it, as it relates to money. But this one's written by a friend of mine, a bit of a mentor of mine, and uh, he was a banker, received a call to ministry. He kind of merged the two because it's a passion area of his, and he's just simply telling his story about how God has been faithful living according to the principles that God outlines money management in Scripture. If you're reading it, you'll recognize this formula. This is what we've been talking about. There are four principles, gratitude, contentment, trust, and humility. You add those four principles to these four practices, debt-free living, saving, budgeting, and giving. This plus this equals real profit. Don't get too hung up on the profit side of that. I'm not a health and wealth preacher, but real profit means something of value. Can I just encourage you that if you were to walk this into your life, this could be of huge value to your peace, your financial state of mind. It could be of real profit to your kids and your grandkids, and even to the church that you worship at and you serve, and you could seek to grow the kingdom through that. This could be real profit for you. Three weeks ago, Moses reminded us of how outrageously generous God is. And because God is so generous, we respond with gratitude. That's how we approach God. We don't come to God empty-handed, but we say, God, we're thankful, we're grateful for what you've done. I'm so grateful to Pastor Daniel and our Pastor Jake Harp. They preached the last two weeks, and our executive pastor Daniel shared from uh, two weeks ago that Solomon shows us what it's like to buy into the myth of more. By the way, Black Friday's coming up, Cyber Monday right behind it. This is pretty important, pretty timely encouragement from Solomon. The myth of more could not be further from the truth. That's the opposite of contentment. That's the principle that God is calling us toward. Then last weekend, Abraham taught us that we'll never pass the test of being faithful to God until we trust God. 
We trust God, and God invites us even to test him by bringing the whole tithe to him. You're going to have the opportunity to respond. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of the word as well. So before this service is done, you'll even have the opportunity to respond and say, God, yes, I seek to follow you with my trust. The final weekend today. Uh, Actually, this is not the final weekend. Next weekend, Pastor Tony's going to be preaching another message on gratitude. But the last weekend, wrapping up this particular formula, I want to look at a guy named Uzziah. How many of you, oh yeah, I know Uzziah. Anybody just chomping at the bit? Oh yeah, I remember Uzziah. I have to confess to you, I've learned an awful lot about Uzziah's life as I've studied for this passage. I had read this passage before. But when I think of Uzziah, actually, I think of a passage of Scripture that's not really about his life. He just gets a reference in it. We're going to be studying today from um, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. You could go there if you'd like. But right now, I want to show you where I see Uzziah. This is chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It ends with the song that we often sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. This language is echoed heaven an image of heaven. It's echoed in Revelation as well. But you'll notice that Isaiah puts that in context, this vision of heaven, what he saw going on in heaven. He puts it in the year that King Uzziah died. Huh. So he was a historical figure. I want to see if you can pick out a moving day in his life. Because gratitude, contentment, trust, humility, these are four great biblical principles for us to build our lives on. We're going to lean in today to humility. Pictures speak a thousand words as we think about a moving day for Uzziah. How many of you have moved sometime recently? Anybody? They say that moving is one of the top ten stressors in the lives of Americans, I don't like to move. We've been in our house for 15 years now. I dread the idea of moving. If you've had a moving day, or maybe you've got one coming up soon, I hope, in the world, I hope it doesn't look anything like this. Pack up the minivan, kids. We're moving somewhere. I used to have a, a camper that had a tall ceiling to it, and this stressed me out. Every time we go underneath one of those bridges, I would think, oh, today's the day I'm going to lose the air conditioner off the top of it. The idea of moving, that, that just stresses me out. Or maybe, maybe you think of moving, it looks like this. We'll hit the next slide, please. I hope your movie day doesn't look like that. This guy's wife is not going to be happy with this moment. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe your movie day looks like this. He's getting a leg workout in a major way. This right here has got testosterone written all over it. I don't know what's going on there, but definitely there's a dude involved. And duct tape, you can never have too much duct tape when you move. Last time we moved, can I show you what one of the things was that we moved? This is a picture of one of my kids playing in the backyard. And uh, this swing set right here, I have moved that sucker twice. You're not even seeing all of it. It was ginormous. It was a huge swing set. Um, We had a friend that bought a new house when we lived in Bloomington. 
and they had just built this giant swing set. We just moved four of our five kids into our home. Now we have five little ones running around. I was like, we need a swing set. So my brothers and I and a couple of other friends, we took a flatbed like trailer and we loaded that thing up and we moved it across town. And then about a year and a half later, when we moved up here to Noblesville, we moved that with us. I've moved it twice now, and over the last 15 years as we've lived there, and the kids have outgrown the swing set, anytime something breaks, I take a piece of it off and I just burn it. And so we're whittling away at this because I don't want to have to move it ever again. We move, right? Some of us, maybe we're getting ready to move to college or move off to the military or whatever the next calling in life is. Or maybe you've got a move you've got coming up right around the corner. Uzziah had a move happen in his life. Let's see if we can pick this out. I'm on page 452. If you're following along in those Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, I'm actually in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Begin with verse 1. Let's read together. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him him king in place of his father. 16 years old. He's just now barely legal to drive a chariot or whatever you drove in those days. Can you imagine the burden of being king? He was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah, that's his daddy's name, rested with his ancestors. The rest of this text reads a little bit like his resume. We're going to look at that, his resume, and see if you can pick out the moving day and the context. Uzziah was 16 years old. It gets repeated, so this must be important. When he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem, 52 years he had a long career. His mother's name was Jacoli. The, the key with these is just to pronounce them like you're confident and you know how to pronounce it. So that's what we're going to say. She was from Jerusalem. So the context of Uzziah. He's from the line of kings. Did you catch that line about his dad? He had a tough family history. His father was king, and his father was the victim of assassination. His dad was killed while he was in office. That's why Uzziah became king. His grandfather was king. He became a victim of conspiracy. His great-grandfather was king. He reigned for one year, and then he was assassinated. I bet Uzziah felt the full weight of his office on his shoulders. Let's keep reading. By the way, his name literally means God, Yahweh, is my strength. I bet he needed to be reminded of that occasionally. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet. He was the son of a priest, godly counselor, somebody investing in the life of this young king. He needed this guy in his life who instructed him in the fear of God. Then this line, I love this. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. If you're memorizing a line from this life of Uzziah, that's not a bad thesis statement. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Let's keep reading verse 6. He went to war. We're picking out here his resume. We're looking for the things that you would list as bullet points on his resume. He went to war against the Philistines and broke down the walls of Gath, Jabna, and Ashdod. Now, it's been a while since we've taken out our hand map of the Holy Land. So if you were to hold that up just like this and you were to put Jerusalem right there, that's in the hill country, the Judean hill country, and you work your way east. No, that's west toward 
the uh, Mediterranean Sea. You come this direction, you leave the hill country into more like the foothills, and now you're into the coastal plain. That's the rich, fertile region. That's the area of the Philistines. By the way, if you go back to one of his great, 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 a long time great grandparents, King David fought a Philistine, a giant named Goliath. He was from Gath. He broke down the walls of these three cities of the Philistines. He then rebuilt towns near Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines over here next to the Mediterranean Sea. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs who lived in Gerbal and against the Munites. What do we see here? If we're making a list here of his resume, the first bullet point, the word that I would point to would be the word power. He's a military leader. He has power on display in those verses. He exhibits significant power. But it wasn't Uzziah's own power, but the power of God that made the difference. Let's keep reading. Let's see if we can get to a moving day, but first we're going to build his resume. What else do we see here? Let's keep reading. The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt because he'd become very, there's our word again, powerful. Power, that's a bullet point on his resume. But what else do we see there? Well, in one word, I would use the word reputation. His fame spreads all the way to the border of Egypt. What does tribute mean? It's when a foreign country says, hey, listen, just for the privilege of you not coming in and invading my country, I'm going to pay you a gift, a tribute. His reputation, he was known far and wide. Let's keep reading. What else is on his resume? Verse 9 says, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle of the wall. By the way, earlier in the year, we studied the book of Nehemiah where a couple hundred years later, Nehemiah brings God's people back and they rebuild these very same walls that we see being recorded here that Uzziah built up. And he fortified them. He also built towers in the wilderness and dug many cisterns. Why? To collect water because he's preparing. Because he had much livestock in the foothills. Again, that's over here. And in the plain over here. He had people working his fields and vineyards in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. What's the one word that I would use to describe this? Improvements. Infrastructure. He was the roundabout king of his era, right? By the way, have you ever traveled outside of our region and the city that doesn't have some of our infrastructure and realized We've got it pretty good. There's something about investing in local infrastructure that has done some amazing things for commerce and just the ability to get around. The same thing happened during the era that Uzziah lived in. He created improvements, and far and wide, this was recognized as a good thing in his country. Let's keep reading. What else do we see here? Uzziah had a well-trained army ready to go out by divisions according to their numbers as mustered by uh, the secretary and this guy, the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the royal officials. The total number of family leaders over the fighting men was 2,600 people. Under their command was an army of 307,500 men trained for war, a powerful force to support the king against his enemies. What's one word to describe this? Well, I'd use the word defense. 
He's got a powerful defense against countries that would invade his country. He's got a standing army just ready to jump to the defense. Let's keep reading. What else does he have? Uzziah, for his defense, provided a whole bunch of specific things. Shields, spears, helmets, coats of armor, bows, and sling stones for the entire army. In Jerusalem, he made devices invented for use on the towers and on the corner defenses. Devices invented. Let's read what these are. A little bit of description here. So the soldiers could shoot arrows and hurl large stones from the walls. Do you know what a trebuchet is? Do you know what a catapult is? Archaeology has suggested that those might not show up on the scene Some people have suggested for a few hundred years, the Roman era, the Greek era. But here in the Bible we're seeing it's possible that some of those inventions happened right here under the reign of Uzziah. Or maybe he was leaning on some older technology that maybe the Solomon era of the Old Testament had developed. And he found some of those plans and they resurrected them and they created these incredible instruments of war. For he was greatly helped until he became powerful. There's some foreshadowing there. We see a moving day, perhaps on the horizon for Uzziah. But before we get there, what do we, what's the one word on his resume that we would put to describe all of this? It'd be the word equipment. Equipment. And here in my notes it says, my wife is hot. I discovered that as I was looking at my notes during the first hour. And, uh, huh. So I left my iPad sitting on the counter on Friday is what that means, and my wife got a hold of my sermon notes and wrote that in. Am I blushing? I blushed during the first hour. Maybe I'm blushing again right now. Equipment. This equipment was of great benefit to the nation. So we've got power. We've got reputation. We've got improvements. We've got defense. We've got equipment. But his resume is not yet finished. There's a moving day on the horizon. Let's keep reading, shall we? Verse 16, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. That's almost good enough to be an axiom. Somebody ought to trademark that and make that a saying. Pride comes before the downfall. And this one's just as sad. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And then the text gets real specific. And it explains how his pride leaked out in a big way. And through, i got, I got to say, through 21st century ears and eyes, we look at this and we're like, what? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. you got to understand, in his day and age, what he's getting ready to do was a big deal. Well, let's just read it. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That wasn't his job. There was a division of labor in the Old Testament. The king was not supposed to do this. This is for the priests. This was God's design. Don't get mad at me. Take this up with God. Azariah, the priest, with 80 other courageous priests, so 81 godly men approach the king. Can you imagine the courage that this took? And they confront him. They followed him into the the temple. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It's not right for you, Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord. That's for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who've been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, they're challenging the king, for you have been unfaithful. 
and you will not be honored by the Lord God. Can you imagine the courage that it took to look him in the eyes and say this? So how, how did Uzziah respond? Well, very meekly, right? He bowed his head and he backed out and he said, I'm so sorry, guys. Party foul. I overstepped my boundaries here. I'm the king, but I shouldn't. What did he do? Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, literally caught red-handed. He became angry. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? While he was raging, can you see the emperor naked with no clothes here? While he was raging, full of pride, at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead, a skin disease, a greatly feared skin disease because it's highly contagious. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, Jotham, his son, had charge. Or they saw that, yeah, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead, so they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy, get this, until the day he died. He lived in a separate house. Moving day. His pride moved him from his position to a space he didn't want to be. Leprous and banned from the temple of the Lord. Maybe that last line is the saddest. He was banned even from the presence of God. Then what happened? Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign from the beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Remember we started there? Isaiah said in the year that King Uzziah died. Here he's referenced. You could go back and read more about his life there. Uzziah rested with his ancestors and was buried near them in a cemetery that belonged to the kings. For people said he had leprosy. And Jotham, his son, succeeded him as king. There's a lot going on there. You could read that line, by the way, that he was buried in a field that belonged to the kings. You could read that, that he was buried with his ancestors. I've been in that space in the, in the Kidron Valley, where these monuments to the ancient kings of Israel, where they were buried. It's possible he was buried there, but more likely that means he was buried apart from them in a field that the kings owned. Why? Well, because of pride. Leprosy. His resume was absolutely destroyed by his pride. Let's look again at his resume, shall we? Let's see if we can identify some stuff here. Power, reputation, improvements, defense, equipment. He accomplished some amazing things in 52 years of service. Arguably, 52 years of service to God. But do you see what brought him down? Pride. Pride, destruction, comes before the downfall. Ken Blanchard puts it this way. Ego, another word for pride, ego stands for edging God out. There was a moving day for King Uzziah here. He didn't get to finish the direction that he was headed to begin with. His tombstone probably did not list his accomplishments. Probably had something to do with leprosy on it. Maybe it had something to do with pride on it. By the way, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who lump everybody into two kinds of people and everybody else. No. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who like emojis and those who are like me who don't get it. How many of you would agree with me? I just don't get the whole emoji thing. 
You know what emojis are? Is emoji short for emojicon? I think so. I, I did a little Google search. This last year, the most used emojis in 2022 are these particular emojis. Let's pop in and look a little bit closer here at the emojis. Some of you are very fond of using this one or the cryy face. I hope you're not real fond of using this one. Uh, a couple of these, as I looked through my phone this last week, I didn't even know were on my phone, including this one. I kind of dig this. You know what this is? See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, monkey see, monkey do. I found this one on my phone as well. I'm trying to figure out how to get this one off of my phone. I don't like this one at all. Do you, uh, do you recognize this name? Dr. Scott Fowman. He actually uh, had a very, has a very impressive resume, right? He worked in artificial intelligence. Throughout 40 years, his career at Pittsburgh's Carnegie Mellon University, 40 years, artificial intelligence, he's kind of a guru, impressive resume. He's the dude that invented emojis. Guess what his obituary is going to say? It's going to say he invented smiley faces. Impressive resume, this is what he'll be known for. And we could venture to guess that King Uzziah's tombstone probably declared he had leprosy. Why? Because of pride. Pride moved him there. He was humiliated by his pride. What was the first sin ever committed, by the way? You're tempted to say Adam and Eve, uh-uh, Satan Satan is the first sin. Pride is called the cardinal sin. He wanted to be like God, and pride led to a downfall. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says this, Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Well, what about us? Let's put the resume list up there again. Let's look at this. Power. Some of us have power. Most of us have some level of power, even if some of it's positional, some of it's influence power. Don't let pride become the cancer, the leprosy in your power. This time of year, let's make it real practical. We're getting ready to get together with families. You know there are power dynamics inside of families. Every one of us is getting ready to step into some level of drama over the next couple of months. As we gather Thanksgiving, Christmas time with extended family. Those power dynamics in your family, be so careful not to let pride become the cancer, become the leprosy in your power. How about reputation? How many likes do I have on Facebook or Instagram? Or how many followers do I have on Twitter? Reputation. Do I get to sit at the cool kid table at the lunch hour? How many people like me? How many people are looking at me and seeing me and recognizing me for who I am? Reputation. How much of that is driven by pride? Pride. Don't let pride become the cancer, the leprosy to ruin your reputation. Improvement. I noticed you lost some weight. Oh, have you been hitting the gym? You're all pumped up and bulked up. Well, yes, thank you. I have been working on that. Pride. It even gets in there, worms its way into our self-improvement. Be so careful not to let pride be the cancer, the leprosy for your improvement. How about defense? I'm going to spin this one just a little bit sideways. Do you ever get defensive? 
when somebody confronts you and says, I've seen something in your life, a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Hey, have you recognized that this is going on? I wonder if you're blind to this. And when we become defensive, I just wonder, rather than listening, I just wonder if that's a cancer, if that's leprosy, pride, worming its way in. Equipment, that's timely, right? Did I mention that this coming Friday is Black Friday and then this Monday after that is Cyber Monday? We're going to shuffle to the stores or shuffle to cyberspace to buy stuff we don't really need with money that we don't really have to impress people that we don't even really like. Is it possible that some of that retail therapy equipment is driven by pride. Be careful not to let your pride be the cancer, be the leprosy that worms its way into your resume. What do we do? How do we respond to pride? How do we fight against this in our life? Well, we do, we do the opposite. We lean into humility. The Bible speaks of this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, there's this challenge. It says your attitude should be the same as the head of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This means he willfully took a lower position. He became obedient to death, and thank goodness he did. We're going to celebrate communion here in just a moment. We celebrate the willful act that Jesus took to put himself lower. Even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself. He willfully took a lower position. By the way, humility is what we're aiming for. A willful decision to put yourself lower. Humiliation is when that happens to you. Choose it. Don't have it chosen for you. Jesus, the creator of life, he puts himself at a lower space. For us to cover over a multitude of our sins. Look at verse 5. It said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, the verses before that suggest what prompts that. Do nothing, it says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Do not look after your own interests. Don't be selfish, but also to the interests of others. Jesus invites us to learn from him. And do what he did. Our identity, by the way, is oftentimes wrapped up in who we are. You know, like our AAA identity, this triple threat. One A probably stands for achievements. One stands for addresses, where you live. Do you live in the right neighborhood, yes or no? Another A is your assets. Do you have the right stuff? This is how we judge one another, right? Who we are. Well, God pushes back on that, even in how he displays himself to us from the very beginning of the story in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When asked, who do I tell them? Moses asked God, who do I tell them sent me? God says, I am who I am. It sounds like Popeye, right? I am who I am. I like the King James Version. It says this. He could have said, well, this is who I am. Tell them I'm strong, I'm eternal, I'm love, I'm holy. Tell them I've done all these things. Here's my resume. He says, I am who I am. The King James Version, it says, I am 
what I am. I am that I am. Or how about the PSV, the Pastor Stan version? This is the, the Hebrew, what it communicates there. It says, I am that I was. I am that I is. I am that I will be. That's awful grammar, but that is great theology. Don't get caught up in who we are, but rather recognize whose we are. We are people of God, people of the great I am. This is why money management is so important, because God is, and we get to be. Let's go back to our formula, shall we? We've got four principles and four practices. Here's the deal. We will never pursue debt-free living until we practice contentment. I'm content with what I have, so I won't take out big loans for pay, to pay for stuff that I don't really need. We will never practice giving unless we learn to trust God. Your wallet can illustrate this, right? I don't know about you, but I rarely use the paper folding money, but I keep a little bit in my wallet just in case there's an emergency. But this is oftentimes how we approach spending this stuff. It's mine. I'm going to hold on to it. This is what I need. This is going to guard against some of my fears. But God says, you know what? Actually, it's all mine. So rather than holding on to it so tightly, maybe, maybe you need to approach life like this. It's yours. It's God's. It never really was mine to begin with. I'm simply a steward holding on to it for a while. And everything in my wallet really is designed to remind me of that. I've got a couple credit cards in here that we pay off every month, but I like the points on them, so we use them. But this represents to me my future. I'm going to pay for those in the future, right, a month from now. Future security really belongs to God. My position, I've got a corporate card in here that is tied to the church. I, I spend way less as a lead pastor than I did maybe even as a youth pastor. I don't use this very much anymore. But even my position, who God has me serving for this temporary season in life, it's his. It belongs to God. My driver's license, my ability, my mobility, my ability to get around, it belongs to him. My Costco card, I don't know what that illustrates. My HSA account, my health, my very health belongs to God. And he would call me to approach him this way, open-handed, because I trust. Last week, last week if you were here, we passed out these cards I shared with you via video that we, we, don't, want to simp- we don't want to just be hearers of the word, according to the James, book of James, but we want to be doers of the word as well. We don't want the Bible to just be spoken over us and then not do anything about it. And so we want to give you an action step. This was a powerful moment in the service we just celebrated. Here in just a moment, I'm going to invite you. Maybe you weren't here last week. If you were, you took this home and you prayed over it with your spouse and and you are making a decision, a willful decision. God, I choose to bring this to you. And you're checking one of these boxes. This is where I choose to engage this next year. It's willful. It's a predetermined decision. I'm not giving to God out of my leftovers, but rather I'm approaching God with who I am because it all belongs to him to begin with anyway. So here in a moment, we're going to have a a moment to respond. We're going to respond with communion. You can grab that and bring it back, and you can take the communion whenever you feel led during that moment to respond. 
But I'm also going to invite you to tear off the top version of this, to check the appropriate box. Maybe you have a conversation, pray together with your spouse before you do that, but be willful with that decision, obediently following God in how he prompts you. And you're going to bring that up with you, and you're going to drop that in one of the containers, and you're going to pick up the communion in the other container. By the way, I mentioned that uh, we have a season right now where we're affirming our elder team. You should know that leaders go first. And your elder team, your pastoral staff team, they've gone first and filled these out and said that they're leading by example. They're tithers. They're givers. They're all in and saying, yeah, God, it's all yours. We choose to follow you and be faithful with the little stuff and the big stuff as well. We'll never, let's go back to our, our uh, formula there. We'll never practice giving until we learn to trust God. But we'll never budget until we learn to be grateful. And like we're talking about today, we'll never save until we embrace humility. By the way, have you read chapter 8 of that book yet? Saving. It rhymes, two action steps, you care and you share. I care for my, if I were to die first, I want my widow, I would want Dawn to be cared for, and so we save toward that, we save toward retirement, we save toward the rainy day, that's very biblical, the Bible talks about that. But we also do that to share, so that when a need comes up, we're able to respond in kind. And we respond with thankfulness, with gratitude. So I want to leave you today with a quote from the theologian Denzel Washington. Don't laugh, you should know he's a Jesus follower. And he was invited to share in a commencement uh, ceremony just a few years ago. And this is what he said to the whole crew. He said this, Put God first in everything you do. Everything I have is by the grace of God. Understand that. It's a gift. I didn't always stick with him, but he stuck with me. While you're on your knees, say thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding, speaking to God. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you. I can't think of a better communion meditation. Except maybe this. Do you see that Denzel Washington had a moving day there? He moved closer to Jesus. I would call us the same. Move toward Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Notice he didn't say, look at my resume. Look what I've done. Look at all the incredible things that I've accomplished for you, huh? He said, I'm gentle, and I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants us to learn from him because he was gentle and humble in heart. Humble, humility. It's a great gift to bring to God, and it's a great gift to put on display for others as well. We move to a place of humility. We move to a lower position. We move to a place where we do not cling to status. Would you stand up with me? I want to pray. We're going to respond. I'm going to invite you to come up and respond with communion. Respond by dropping that card. By the way, that's not 
That's not a commitment between you and your church. That card is a commitment between you and your God. You're responding. Saying, Jesus, I choose to follow you. Everything that I have is yours. And here you go. You lead. I'll follow. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to respond. We thank you for the humility that you put on display even in your cross, the sacrifice you made for us. And so as we recognize that our whole lives are really yours, we've been redeemed, we've been bought with a price, a very difficult price. Lord, we respond with faithfulness, with trust, even generosity. It's an act of worship that we give you our God right now. And it's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray.